Well, today we conclude our December preaching series out of Matthew 1 and 2. We've, we've had our minds focus on Christmas and what it means that the eternal Son of God became a human and came into the world to save us from our sin. And it makes sense that today we'll finish up the second half of chapter 2 of Matthew, which is the end of the Christmas story in the Gospel of Matthew. And it makes sense that we study that today, the Sunday after Christmas, because the events that took place in the end of Matthew 2 took place soon after the birth of Jesus. So chronologically, it definitely fits that we would be studying it on this particular Sunday. So if you can, please turn to Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to be reading from verses 13 through 23. Again, Matthew 2, 13 through 23. Now, when they had departed, they being the wise men that we looked at last week. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, Weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he would be called a Nazarene. Our Father in heaven, this morning we just ask that your spirit would be so present here. That you would convict us of our sin. That you would encourage us. That we would leave this place different, changed. With a greater resolve to follow you, Jesus, and to make you known. So we just ask for your anointing, for your blessing, your leading, for your glory, Jesus. Amen. So Matthew 2 is a kind of, if you think maybe unusual, these, these 10 verses, it's part of the Christmas story. But I think for us, like, we don't think of this as being part of the Christmas story. We tend to think the story ends with the coming of the wise men, and then that's it. The Christmas story ends right there. 
but it actually continues in Matthew 2. And when you have this power-hungry ruler, Herod, that sends his troops into Bethlehem to kill all the infants and all the toddlers, so all the children, all the boys, two years and under. I mean, that is, if you just stop and ponder that, that is dark. That is just pure evil. And that's part of the Christmas story. And what I love about the Bible is that it is completely honest. You would approach the Christmas story and you would, you would have certain expectations and then all of a sudden you get what some call the, the slaughtering or the killing of the innocents. And so this, this is just so, so terrible. And it's kind of like going in to watch a movie that you think is going to be like a Christmas movie and then it turns into being a horror movie. And you're like, whoa, what just happened here? And that's, that's kind of the feeling that you get with this. But the Bible is like the ultimate no-spin zone. There's no spin. There's no political agenda. It's just absolute truth. It just reports events, how that happened, and it shows that God has a purpose in allowing them. And whether it's a joyful thing or whether it's a really hard thing, the Bible just says it how it is. And that's what you see right here with Matthew 2. And this part of the story, the Christmas story, is part of God's story. And it's part of your story. Because God is indeed telling a story. And sometimes our stories include pain. Or they include death. They include disappointment. And that's just life on this side of heaven. And the Bible, it doesn't shy away from it. But to better understand this, in order for us to get our minds around the significance of this part of the Christmas story, I want us to just get a brief recap of God's overall story of the world and how all of this fits together. It begins in the Garden of Eden, and what you have there is delight. That's what Eden means. It means delight. And so you have perfection. You have Adam and Eve enjoying each other. You have no divorce, no conflict, no death, no disease, just pure joy and intimacy with God's people living in God's presence, living out their purpose of enjoying their God. But then the next scene story is that there's a serpent. There's this evil. The Bible doesn't tell us at that point in Genesis, and you find out later in Isaiah and other texts what happened, but in Genesis it doesn't explain how this evil came into being. It just presents there is this evil. And this evil spirit takes the form of a serpent, and he comes into the garden. He invades God's sanctuary. He comes into God's sacred and holy space where God is enjoying his people, and he comes and he invades, he penetrates in Adam, who had authority over all animals, did not crush the head of the serpent. Instead, Adam was defeated by the serpent. And the serpent then took a python stranglehold. So picture a cosmic python that has taken a stranglehold on the world. And he is ruling it. And you see the evidence of it with sin and with death. And so Adam and Eve are then enslaved. And the next scene is now you have sin 
and you have death. And the rest of God's story is marked by this reality of God's people now struggle. Struggle against the serpent because struggling against sin and our rebellion because now he is the ruler of this age. And this whole story shows this as you see rebellion and idolatry and just not loving God and not trusting God over and over. That's God's, God's story of humanity being enslaved to the serpent. But you also have throughout the whole story, God delivering his people and making promises. He promises in Genesis 3 that he will send a Messiah. That one day this man, born of a woman, will confront the serpent and he will defeat the serpent and crush his head and he will liberate God's people from their captivity. He will give them new hearts. He will lead them back into the garden and he will bring them into the presence of God where there is nothing but joy and shalom, peace with God. There's this Messiah who was promised that he will come, and he is promised throughout the entire Old Testament. And you see glimpses like with Abraham. This is in Genesis 12, early in the story, where God promises that one of his descendants will be in the line of this promised Messiah, and that he will be a blessing to all the nations, all the families of the world. So every people group on the planet will be blessed through this one descendant of Abraham. And this story unfolds further, and you have Moses, who then, he comes and he's a little C Christ. Not the Christ, but like a little C Christ, a small M Messiah. And what does he do? Well, Moses, through God's power, liberates God's people from slavery to the serpent in Egypt. And then he gives them God's word. So he goes up to a mountain, and he receives God's word. And then he builds this tabernacle, which is God's dwelling, to lead the people back into God's presence. And so the tabernacle was like a miniature traveling Eden, so that God's people could experience his presence right there in the wilderness. The problem is, people's hearts still weren't changed. And so the serpent continued to rule, and Moses died. And there were many new leaders, but we don't have time to go through the entire Old Testament. But you can fast forward and you get to King David, who was like the prototype Messiah. He solidified the borders. He brought peace. He, he defeated all the enemies around Israel. He brought the ark back into Israel. And yet, David still died. And if you read his story, he was still a very flawed man. And if you keep reading the story, the Old Testament ends, and there's no Messiah. Oh, he's promised throughout the prophets. He's promised throughout the whole Old Testament. And yet, Satan is still ruling. People's hearts are still far from God, and their promises have not become a reality. There is still slavery. And then, hundreds of years later, Something happened. Jesus happened. He was born. He came. And he fulfilled all of God's promises. 
every single one of them. And so he came as we've been looking at these last few weeks. And the Gospel of Matthew is telling us how the story of Jesus' birth and, if you keep reading, his life and then his death and his resurrection is a continuation and a fulfillment of the whole biblical story of God and his people. Which is why Matthew 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse in the whole New Testament, says that this is the record of Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, the son of David, the son of of Abraham. He is connecting. So Matthew 1, 1 is connecting everything of the Old Testament with Jesus. That Jesus is the new and the better Abraham. So all the nations are blessed through Jesus. And you immediately see all the nations coming with his birth where these, these wise men come from a different land and these Gentiles, they're not Jewish, they come from other nations, and they bow before baby Jesus. Why? Fulfilling prophecy. Fulfilling the promise that all nations will bow down and adore Jesus. Oh, come, let us adore him. He is the new and better Moses. See, just like Moses, who was called out of Egypt, we see in this text here, Matthew 2, that Jesus was called out of Egypt. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. Moses received God's word on a mountain. Jesus taught God's word on a mountain, often called Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Moses built a tabernacle so that God's people could have God's presence. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He is God's presence that we now can experience because of his resurrection and sending us his spirit. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is the new and better David David defeated the enemies, but in the end, David himself died and failed. Jesus, a descendant of David, is the king, the rightful heir to the throne, who created the world and then redeemed it. And this Jesus of Nazareth, who is resurrected and is alive today, he is right now ruling. Where is he ruling? In the lives of his people, in the hearts of his people. He rules in our lives, and yet one day when he returns, he will rule all the nations. He will rule. He will be the benevolent and gracious and merciful and good ruler. Every knee will bow before the king. So this is who Jesus is. And so Matthew 1 and 2 is crying out, Jesus is not just a man. He's not just some new teacher or religious leader. Jesus is God with us. He is Emmanuel. It is crying out, see his glory. 
be stunned, fall before him in worship. He is worthy of your life, of your loyalty. He is worthy of it all. That is how Matthew 1 and 2 begins. Now, we're not doing a whole study in Matthew. We're just looking at the first two chapters here in December. We'll begin a new series in January. But if you were going to study the whole book, this is what you would see, and everything would flow from this in Matthew 1 and 2. And then in this story, what you have is King Herod killing babies. If you think back, you had the king of Egypt who also killed babies. Now, not by the sword. He threw them into the Nile. And then today, we continue to see abortion clinics killing babies. The serpent and his culture of death has been at work from the beginning. Opposing the king. Wanting to unseat Jesus from his throne. This has been the serpent's goal from the very beginning in wanting to see those who bear his image killed and destroyed and suffering. That is the serpent's agenda, opposing God and his kingdom of light and opposing those that reflect his image, opposing the kingdom of light and opposing the culture of life that Jesus This is our enemy, and Matthew 2 is making so clear Jesus is Messiah, and yet there is a serpent that continues to oppose him. But what you see in Matthew 2 is Christmas is about promises kept. God has been making promises for thousands of years, and in the person of Jesus, every single promise was kept. Kept. And there are three kind of major Old Testament themes that you see here in Matthew 2 that we just read. And these three themes show how Jesus, what he did was he fulfilled the Old Testament promise, and then how he overcame the enemy and offers us hope today. So let's go through this text and see these three themes. So Jesus, number one, decisively fulfilled the meaning of, number one, of the Exodus. And and you see that verses 13 through 15. It says, an angel came to, to Joseph, and it says, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So what you see right there in verses 13 through 15 is going in to Exodus, and then God calls Joseph later up out of, well, to Egypt and then out of Egypt because this is pointing to the Exodus, which is why it says this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So that is a quote from Hosea chapter 2 verse 15 is where Matthew is quoting. The prophet Hosea lived over 700 years before Jesus was born. 
And in that text, Hosea was recounting the slavery in Egypt and the exodus, how they were freed out of slavery in Egypt. So the word exodus, it means going out or departing, so like exit. And so that's where the word comes from. It just means a going out of. So God, people departed or went out from, from Egypt out of slavery. And it says in Exodus 4.22, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So the whole point of the Exodus was God as the father freeing his son from slavery in Egypt. It was about a father's love and wanting to receive his son and bring him back home and have him near to his heart. And so Jesus here, by going to Egypt and then coming up out of Egypt, was fulfilling the ultimate meaning of the Exodus. Now, what is the result of Jesus decisively fulfilling the meaning of the Exodus? Well, for you and me, it means rescue. That's what it means. It means rescue. That Jesus has accomplished the final exodus, like the ultimate exodus, which is our rescue from our slavery to sin and to the kingdom of darkness, that we have been rescued as slaves. So the word redemption is from the the slave market, where you would pay the redemption price, and that would free a slave from slavery. And so on the cross, Jesus redeemed us. He paid the redemption price, which was his own blood. He paid the price so that we could be set free. We could not set ourselves free. We could not save ourselves from our own sin. That's why Jesus came. Left ourselves, we're powerless. That's the only reason why Jesus had to die, because we could not do it for ourselves. So the Exodus points to Jesus giving us rescue. Second, number two, Jesus decisively fulfilled the meaning of the exile. So what you see here is the exile. So verse 16 describes how King Herod became angry and the wise men did not return. So he sent soldiers to kill all the boys two years and under. And in the wake of that suffering, Matthew quotes from the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah, it actually was called the weeping prophet. Jeremiah was a prophet who lived about 600 years before Jesus. And the nation of Judah had been taken into captivity into Babylon, so modern-day Iraq. The Babylonians came, and they completely destroyed everything. I'm talking they burned down the city. The temple was reduced to rubble. Those that survived the onslaught were taken to Babylon to live as exiles. It was an incredibly painful time with weeping and great lamenting. In verses 17 and 18, it's a quote from Jeremiah 31, 15. Let's read that again just briefly. It said, this, is, this was, to, was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. So it's describing this weeping that was happening during the exile. And so Matthew takes the exile from Jeremiah 
of 600 years earlier, and then he's connecting it with the weeping that was happening that day when all the little boys were killed in Bethlehem. Why? Why would the Holy Spirit inspire Matthew to connect the weeping of the exile taken to Babylon with the weeping of these boys being killed at the hand of Herod? Because in both cases, God promises restoration after deep pain. That is what you saw. Jeremiah was promising that one day God would restore his people. And so God promises restoration. And so if you want to think of it this way, what is the result of Jesus decisively fulfilling the exile? Well, our church's name, renewal. That's what it leads to. It leads to renewal. Jesus has come to make us new, to heal our wounds, to deliver us from evil, to bring life, and we can continue to have faith even in deep pain. We can depend on God because he promises restoration in the middle of deep pain. Number three. Jesus decisively fulfilled the meaning of the rejected Messiah. So what you see here, verses 19 through 22, it says that an angel appeared to Joseph while they were living in Egypt. And he says, Herod has died. Go back home to Israel. And so he does. In verse 23 that we just read, describes how they moved to Nazareth. And it says, so that... What's spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he will be called a Nazarene. You're wondering, well, where exactly does it say that in the Bible? Well, it doesn't quote that. So nowhere in the Old Testament is there a quote that says that he is going to be a Nazarene or the Messiah would live in Nazareth or northern Galilee. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't have that promise. And so you're thinking, well, what is Matthew then talking about here. Well, the, there is a theme that runs throughout the whole Old Testament that describes that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. Now, that theme is throughout the Old Testament, that the Messiah would come and he would be rejected by his people. Now, in Jesus' day, Nazareth was despised and rejected. No one liked Nazareth. It was rural, it was uncultured, it was uneducated and undesirable. Like, this is the kind of place, the backwoods, you know, kind of like West Virginia maybe. You know, I don't know if you're from West Virginia, if you are, I'm sorry. Or, you know, it was just, it was just like rednecks, you know. It, it was the, the kind of people that the cultured, sophisticated educated elites of Jerusalem, think New York, that looked down on other people. Nazareth was looked down upon, and it was thick. It was bad. So here, let me give you an example, just so you can see this in John chapter 1. Read verses 45 and 46. These are two men that would actually follow Jesus, but this is before that. And this is John 1, 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Sound familiar? 
all the promises, all of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. It says we found the Messiah of whom all the Old Testament has been pointing to. It says we found him of Moses in the law. And also prophets wrote about Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You can't just picture Nathaniel. And Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says to him, come and see. Believe it or not, it's actually possible that something good, the ultimate good, could come out of a place that is so rejected like Nazareth. So you have Jesus, who is the rejected Messiah from a rejected city, dying on the cross, being rejected by the people who he loved. And he's hanging there, dying, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stunning. It just leaves us breathless to see such a supernatural display of mercy towards us. As the rejected Messiah, what does that mean for you and me? We are received. We are not rejected by God. We are received by God because of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus brings God's heavenly kingdom here to earth and invites his disciples into a new way of life, transformed life, renewed life through his life, death, and resurrection. And Jesus is that snake crusher who has come into the world and is leading us back into the garden, back into joy, back to our purpose, back into God's presence. And so through Jesus, we are rescued and renewed and received. Christmas is about promises kept. You know, in a few days, 2019 will end. And I don't know if you can think of one word to describe how 2019 was for you. Maybe some of you would use the word exciting or joyful or growing or fulfilling. Maybe you would use words like that. But I don't know, maybe some of you would use words like disappointing or boring, or painful, or struggle. No matter what 2019 looked like for you, I can tell you this, God was at work. No matter the circumstances of 2019, I can promise you God was at work. And maybe you're wondering, man, I didn't see it, or man, I didn't feel it, or even right now, I don't see it. I don't see God at work. I can promise you with the authority of God's word that God is at work even in your waiting, that he has conquered and we have hope. And I don't know, maybe you're like me today, where you're heading into 2020 and your heart is broken. 
Um, many of you know this. Um, I wasn't here last Sunday, our associate Colton White preached, because I was in Laredo with my family at my brother's memorial service. He took his life two weeks ago tomorrow. And these last 13 days have been, honest with you, it's been really hard. Grief is a beast. And I can be fine. And God's peace and centered and like walking in the spirit. And then out of nowhere, I just get hit with this wave of sadness or of depression or of anger even or even guilt. It's just overwhelming, just the, the rave emotions and how they come at you and it can, it can be really hard. And, and, you, and you get busy, and you focus on Christmas, and being strong. And, and yet there's moments, ah, it's just not that easy. Life can be really painful at times. And I can tell you that I've never tasted grief like I have had these last two weeks. And I'm so thankful for this faith family. The meals, the calls, the gifts, the encouragements, the visits have been just overwhelming. First Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope, and his name is Jesus. Hope means waiting. You know, if you speak Spanish, the word to wait means esperar. And the word, so the, the word for waiting just means esperar, but the word for hope is esperanza. And so they're very similar words because hoping is waiting. But we don't, we don't hope like the world hopes. The world hopes with wishful thinking or hoping the odds work out or hoping circumstances would just change for the better. That is not how we hope. We have a hope that is founded upon the character of God on Jesus himself. And so hoping, hoping is looking back and seeing the character of God. And then we can look forward and we see with our eyes of faith, we see a day when things will be better. That is hope. And it's grounded upon this Jesus we've been talking about this morning. And God is telling a story. He is telling a story of grace and of mercy, a story of promises capped. He's telling a story of rescue, of renewal, and of being received. This is the story. This is what we're about. He's telling a story of victory. He's telling a story of hope, of purpose, of joy. And it's the story of our lives, the story of this church that is several months old. 
And I look forward to with great expectations. When I think of 2020, I was, I, I was an absolute mess last night. And I was um, praying, saying, God, give me a word for 2020. And as I was praying, he, he just impressed one word, and it was expectation. I'm approaching 2020 with great expectation, with anticipation of what God is going to do. And yes, in healing my life, but in in yours, and in ours together, in the life of Renew a Church, I have such great expectation for what God will do. May we be a church that's full of faith. And as we walk into 2020 with expectation and with hope and with confidence, because Jesus has fulfilled all of the promises, he has overcome the enemy, and he offers us hope today. So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what we're about. This is who we are. May we together, with our hearts knit together, see the renewal of God spread to Bell County and the world.